I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime podcast that digs into podcasts, pop culture, and this week we'll talk about part two of that four-part HBO documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed. We'll also hear from a central character in that story. Joining me to get that done and a whole lot more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Buonasera. Also with us- Is that is, Italian? I don't know. Is it, is it <laughs> so, Bona? Bona Sera? Uh, Bona Sera? I don't know. <laughs> Bona. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and our resident rage walker, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, I've had lots to rage about this week, so lots of walking going on. Can't wait to hear about it. And finally with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Aloha. <laughs> that, counts. that counts. Are you saying aloha because you heard me pitching my public radio fun drive in which we were giving away a trip to Hawaii? Uh, <laughs> I, I did I'm hear you. trying to subtly... Put my finger on the scale. Yeah, it's over though. By the time this drops, it's gonna be over. But thanks. Uh, what, damn it. What patron level is the one where we take our listeners to Hawaii? I don't know. That we should we should maybe make one though. But it has to be enough for us to actually pay for that for trip to Hawaii. Join us at the five thousand right. dollar level. Anyway, Kevin, that actually reminds the champagne me champagne room level. Uh I do want to debut a new segment tonight, only because and I promise, guys, we'll keep it brief and it's important. But Kevin, can you please read this for me? Shameful, shameless Shameless plugs. plugs. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to mention something about our Patreon content real quick. I have two big shameless plugs this week. Uh, Two and a half. Big thing about our Patreon content. We have so much happening there. We have the Crime Writers on After Show, Mm -hmm. which is slamming, right? Yep. It's amazing. We're going to have Toby's Book Club uh, podcast dropping soon. The new episode is dropping soon. What are we talking about, Toby? Uh, the Real Lolita. Oh, that's right. By yes. Sarah Wyman. Sarah that's Wyman, right. yep. That's right. And uh, the only reason it hasn't dropped yet is because our producer has been out of the country, but he's returning today and is going to be producing that ASAP. But we have also an amazing episode of Mary with Podcast up right now in which Kevin and I finally, finally got to answer the kind of question I've been wanting to answer ever since we started that podcast, which is about what, Kevin? 
is he into you? <laughs> Somebody wrote to us and was basically like, here's what's going on with me and my new boyfriend. Am I being too blah, blah, yeah. blah? Is he actually into me? It's so, so good. It's yeah, so juicy. We got a lot of people joining that Facebook group and, and filing questions uh, for and Married Podcast. Yeah, Married Podcast. That that uh, Facebook group, it's easy to join. Just go to Facebook and it's called Married with Podcasts. Let's discuss. Let's discuss. That's right. We'll let you in. You don't even have to like listen to the podcast. Yeah, you don't to have be to be married. You can just ask for advice and some other podcast listener might answer yeah. it for you. And of course, we also have Laura Bricker's Rage Walking True Crime Fitness Fun Facebook group in our Patreon, which yes. you do actually have to be a member of our Patreon to join. And Laura is like going to be making like a little short podcast for that group where she's going to be, I hope, talking to the weird, charming people in her tiny town and like giving us a little bit of her hometown charm. Right, Laura? Yeah, it's uh, it's in the works. I have my recording equipment. And um, so if you talk to my family, they'll tell you that, you know, I can't go out anywhere without getting waylaid by talking to somebody, whether yeah. it's the grocery store or around town. And um, my friend, the psychic, says it's because I have a magnet to attract really interesting people. So I am <laughs> saying now, I, I do. She said she's only seen one other person like this. So I n- you know now how we know that carrying... that's true because she's a friend, the psychic. That's how we know that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, we have, yeah. I, so in, I'm going to carry my little recorder around, and I'm going to be chatting with some really interesting people. Perhaps Dean, the UFO guy, might make an appearance. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, he sometimes looking for lost villages and foraging for berries, but um, he also likes to chat UFOs when I encounter him on the street. All right. So if you're interested in all that stuff, and by the way, you should be because we're just doing a lot of it, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, like the nice man tells you to do at the beginning of this podcast, and join our little Patreon family. It's getting good. It's getting so good. All right. So I have one more shameless plug. All right. And in order to promote it, I'm just going to play a clip right now. Hey guys, it's Rebecca. I'm sitting here with two people you may or may not have heard of. Want to introduce yourself? I'm Jason Moon. I'm the host of Bear Brook. And here are you. I'm Taylor Quimby. I'm the senior producer of Bear Brook. And why are we all here today? Um, Because we're going on a tour, (laughs) guys. Can you believe that? (laughs) A Bear Brook tour, May 8th through 14th. We're going to be in five cities. I will be on stage with you guys asking you questions about what, how the podcast was made, right? Yeah, yeah. Sort of disagreements in the editing room. (laughs) Fierce. Fierce though they were. How Um, Jason went from being a cub reporter to an international superstar podcaster. I believe young beat reporter is the the phrase of... of, of the times. Yeah, you can come ruin your image of, of what we look like mm-hmm. by seeing us in person. That's That'd right. be fun. That's right. You're going to be much older than people imagined you'd be, I'm guessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be in the D.C. area. We're going to be in Asbury Park, New Jersey. We're going to be in Brooklyn, in New York. And we're going to be in Boston. Are you guys excited? I'm excited. Uh, yeah. We haven't we haven't made our rider yet, but we're uh, yeah. we're sure gonna, sure to make lots of demands. <laughs> Green M and M's only, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm here to ask crime writers on people whether or not you just want to see me uh, or see the guys from Bear Brook, which is like the real attraction of this whole tour thing. Check out. We'll put a link in our show notes, but you can also go to bearbrookpodcast.com to get tour details and buy tickets. Thanks to you guys for sitting in with me and doing this. Promo. Of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> I will always promote things that <laughs> <laughs> I've worked on. <laughs> so, Kevin, I am going on a podcast tour. Let me help you pack your bags with two other men who are not you. 
That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling insecure that no. I'm going to become super famous on this Bear Brook podcast tour? Rebecca, you're already super famous. <laughs> People are going to come. They don't care about Jason and like unsolved homicides. They just want to see you. No, I think they actually, if you look at the numbers, they actually really do care about Jason Moon and the Bear Brook case. Are you going to have uh, some surprise wardrobe for Baltimore? I may or may not. We will see. We will see. The other thing I want to mention uh, quickly is that I there's an event happening next week that's free at the New America uh, Foundation uh, called Future Tense. It's a Slate Future Tense event, and I'm going to be there with Jason Moon and a couple of really interesting, smart people talking about how DNA is being um, used to solve cold cases. So, Kevin, can you put a link for that event, too, in our show notes in case anyone in the D.C. area wants to sign up this sure. Wednesday to go to that? Yeah, when and where? It's Wednesday at New America from 6 to 8 p.m. It's not the Bear Brook Tour. It's a different thing, but it's still going to be lit. All right. (laughs) All right. And thus ends our first segment called... Shameful Shameless Shameless Plugs. All right. Let's start the show for real. Kevin, can you please read this for me? True True Crime Update. As you all have no doubt heard, last week the Court of Appeals of Maryland dealt a painful blow to serial season one's Adnan Syed, overturning two prior court rulings and denying him the right to a new trial. The timing of this ruling coincided with the premiere of the HBO documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed. Of course, we're reviewing part two of that doc later in this episode. As part of our coverage of the HBO documentary, Kevin and I did plan an interview with Rabia Chaudhry, whose book and non-story was the basis for some of that documentary, and who, as you all know, is the Syed family friend who has been fighting for his exoneration for two decades. But when we spoke to Rabia, it was after this ruling came down. So we talked about the film, but we also talked about her reaction to this legal news. Rabia, where were you when you heard about the court's decision? Oh, gosh. I was in, I was already in a very difficult place. Uh, I, my husband and I were actually away for a three-day marriage retreat, um, which, you know, marriage is a bitch sometimes. It's very difficult. So, you know, this is something mm-hmm. we've been thinking about for a while. So we, I decided... You I don't want, know anything about that. I know anything about that. Yeah. Well, this is my second <laughs> rodeo, so I know a lot about it. But anyway, so we were there, and this was like first day of it, and... Um, and we were already going through it. It's like there's a bunch of other couples, and it's like everybody's already emotional. And and then this happens. And I found out because uh, not. I mean, I wasn't on my phone all day, but we had a lunch break, and I started getting all these messages. I'm so sorry. I'm so devastated. I'm, I was like, oh my god, what happened? And then, of course, I mean, I looked, and there it was. And I looked online, and uh, I had a complete and utter meltdown. I just was like, I'm done. I'm done with life. I'm done with everything. <laughs> I don't want, I'm just, I was like, you know what? I can just walk away from everything and just disappear. I mean, I, I was in a very, very bad place for a few hours. Um, but then I spoke to his mom. I spoke to Justin a couple of times, got my shit together, went back to the retreat. And I was like, all right, let's go forward. How is it not doing? Have you spoken to him since this ruling came down? Yeah. Uh, I spoke to him on Sunday, uh, right before the first, that Sunday, right before the first um, episode aired. He called me about an hour before the first episode aired. And as soon as I heard his voice, I started just, I just had another meltdown. I started crying because I, I just, I don't know what to say, but to say sorry, because I'm heartbroken for him. Because the, the, the previous time we had spoken, which was just about four or five days earlier, you know, I was discussing what he would you know, how, how to handle him coming home. Cause I really anticipated it happening this year. And so, uh, but he was fine. I mean, he was, 
I'm not going to say he's fine. I know he can't be fine. I don't believe it. But he was fine for me. And he was trying to console me. And he said, listen, uh, we've been in worse spots uh, with less resources. He's like, we have, we still have options. We have a lot of support. And maybe it was meant to be this way. He's like, imagine if this documentary aired and then like six, seven months later, the ruling came out and there just wasn't as much interest. And he's like, right now it came out right as the people are, more people are learning about the case. He's like, so you never know what kind of developments would come out of that. And it's true. Even after the first episode, we've gotten new leads. Um, so, you know, he's always looking for the silver lining. Yeah. Yeah, the timing of it was really stunning to me. And, you know, it's comforting to me to hear Adnan say that because that was my gut instinct was, you know, as a coldly as a producer, I'm like, if a ruling came out in the middle of the documentary, it would already be finished. You know, there's no room to change anything. And then it would feel out of step, out of touch, or if it came after, it coming right before makes so much of this so much more poignant for me as I watch it. Yeah. Like the 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 little miscarriages along the way that I think the documentary is brilliantly laying out, yeah. they stick out more almost because we have this bad news. And, and there'll be some stuff in the fourth episode that's going to make this news feel even worse. But having said that... Um, you know, we we have four or five different legal options, and I've told Justin I'm not leaving a single stone unturned. So we're gonna we're gonna try everything. So you could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. What's the likelihood that you're gonna attempt that? The likelihood that we'll attempt it is high, but the likelihood that we will be granted cert and they will actually take the case is low. Yeah. Uh, we can ask the same court to reconsider. Almost never happens because courts don't like to overrule themselves. Um, we can go to a federal habeas. Uh, that's a that's an option. And then we can actually go back and file a new post-conviction. Um, you know, but if we do that, let's say we do that. And let's say we win that post-conviction. You know what you're looking at? You're looking at the state going all the way up the appellate process again, right? So Susan had said she anticipates another, she, she thinks we'll, he'll still get out on, on some legal basis, uh, but she thinks it'll take three to five years. Now, that's in the legal system. Let's say there's something evidentiary that comes out, something new that could actually exonerate him, and that could be a much shorter path. Uh, and then there's one more. There's a couple more options. One option is that the Supreme Court ruled a few years ago that um, life without parole is unconstitutional, so we could push on him being resentenced. And then there's one final option, which I, I tweeted, but I, I'm like, you know what? I There's no reason I wouldn't and couldn't do this, is that either I or somebody else in this state who can think more clearly and who is less entrenched, you know, with the establishment, run for attorney general and just shake everything up. Wouldn't the governor have to do that? Couldn't the governor grant clemency or a pardon? The governor could grant a pardon. We have never thought about that because what a pardon means is you're guilty, but I pardon you. And what right. we have wanted is for him not oh, to. Robbie, that is so in vogue right now. Pardons are just like passing them around like <laughs> yeah. cocktail wieners. Come yeah. on. Yeah, I know. I mean, like people keep tweeting at me, ask Trump. I'm like, it doesn't, Trump doesn't have jurisdiction right. over yeah, this. Please right. stop. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and I, I, even then, I don't know if we would ever do that. <laughs> you know, they're like, ask you, He's probably blocked you on Twitter already. Not yet. <laughs> and sadly, no, he hasn't. I haven't Once he sees how she dresses, he definitely it's will all yeah. it's all done. on Twitter. Can we, can we shift to the HBO documentary? Yeah, let's do that. You are listed as an executive producer. A lot of the source material is your book. How much influence do you have over the editorial? Zero. 
None. Oh. I'm not part of the editing process at all. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Amy and I, Susan Call and I earlier today were, were recording Undisclosed and afterwards we're like, hey, you think we can get everything that's left on the cutting room floor? Because we have no idea how many hundreds <laughs> of hours she's got and what she's, she is having to do so, cram so much into four episodes. Really, she needed like right. eight. Um, but no, I have none. I have no idea what's going to be in it, what's not going to be in it. When I watched, you know, every episode that I've seen and I got to preview the first three, um, there was always stuff in there that I didn't know. Is there stuff in there you disagreed with? Being in there or disagree with factually? No, yeah, I mean, yeah, fa- mm. or perception, your interpretation of things that people said. The you only like, thing, bullshit? Um, no, not really. I, to me, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm still learning about this case, you know, it's just so crazy. Mm. But the one thing that, uh, and I did mention this in our Undisclosed episode that'll be coming out after the, ep- the second episode is I am not completely comfortable with um, the crime scene photographs of the burial site. Mm. I didn't yeah. know it would be in there. And I, of course, I've seen them before. Susan, Colin, and I have seen them. They are evidence. There's no way around it. It's a murder case. You have to look at this. Uh, having said that, something, it just really, it just breaks my heart. I don't want, like, you know, I feel protective of Hay. I mean, I feel like I don't want people to see her like that. It was really hard for me to see that. And I, I'm not going to come down on Amy. I understand it is, this is a murder case. That's evidence. But I don't know if I would have done that. So one of the things that I've wondered about, you know, you in particular, because I think it's my audience knows this is not a surprise. Like we know each other personally. Like I think of you as a dear friend. I hope that it's reciprocated. And it's yeah, not you know, I've got my days. I've got my days. Friendship. Um, <laughs> the scooter, the scooter thing threw me off. You know, Rebecca. But yes. no, well, I, love I was you. in Austin for a work conference recently, and I'll tell you, the, when I was there for a work conference, the scooter people were obnoxious. But I'm sure you were also on. The well, you were speaking as somebody with a broken leg, so I get it. Okay, it's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So, um, but one of the things that really I think this documentary so far, and in, in the episode that we are having you on to talk about it, full disclosure, it's through episode two. Mm. One of the things that I love about it is that even though we know that it was your book that was optioned to make this and you have a point of view, which you should and do have, um, Amy Berg is making the documentary in such a way that we as the audience are seeing the same stuff we heard in Serial Season 1, the same stuff that you know came out of legal case that makes people think like, you know what, this looks bad for Anon. Like they have Jen in person in the present, which is fascinating. Somewhat, at least in episode two, really sticking to that. She is sure it was the 13th. She is sure this is what happened. And it looks bad. And I think that makes this so much stronger because I see the threads being pulled and I can anticipate what's coming next. But when you see those scenes that, you know, on their face just make him look bad, like how do you react to those scenes when you see them? Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't react to them. I mean, like that's, that it is what it is. I mean, that's what she remembers, but I know that not everybody's remembering the right things or remembering things the right way necessarily. I also know that a lot of what Jen knows, she knows because she's been told. And I also know that sometimes people make up shit. So this is the state's case. I mean, basically, you know, Amy Berg is laying out, this is the state's case. These are the witnesses. So for me to see them again, repeating what they always said is, I mean, that's nothing new. Robbie, I'm guessing, two-part question here. I'm guessing that the day after the last episode of Serial aired, there might have been some kind of emotional letdown or a strange feeling about something being done but not accomplished. I'm wondering, 
Did you actually have that after Serial? And do you anticipate that after episode four of this documentary airs on HBO, that Monday morning you may feel something similar? I absolutely have that after Serial because I was like, okay, now what? I mean, right. the biggest you know gift we got from Serial legally was that Asia was back in the case. But having said that, the conversation around Adnan out there in the public discourse on social media was still exactly what Serial aimed for, which is maybe he's guilty, maybe he's not. Whereas Susan Cullen and I, you know, we kept finding more faults with the state's case and looking at the evidence in a more deeper way. And, the, and I was like, how do we get this information to the public so that we can get more support for Adnan? And so there wasn't what's next. And a friend of mine said to me, you should make a podcast to follow up Serial. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I can't make a podcast. But then after a couple of months, Somebody else said the same thing. We're like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> do I anticipate it? Would I anticipate? No, I don't anticipate the same kind of ambiguity um, that Serial left because that bothered me. I thought Serial left a lot of things incomplete. Um, Serial never touched the autopsy. I thought that was a weird choice. I kept expecting one of the episodes to be about the autopsy. Um, Serial never got into how the detectives were connected to other wrongful convictions. You know, there are some things we're just not complete. And I don't, but Amy, Amy, I don't think has left any of those stones unturned. And she, I think, really understands why these are serious issues and why you have to look at the pattern of behavior with the police and other things. And, you know, and she's building on Serial. So I don't, I don't blame Serial for that. We're all building on more. And, and after Amy's done, after the series, I bet you there'll be more. <laughs> so there'll be more work and more information that comes forward. Thank you so much, Rabia, for talking with us. Now, our conversation with her was quite a bit longer than what you all just heard there. We'll be including the rest of that conversation with Rabia in our Patreon podcast, the CWO After Show, so you can hear it right now there if you sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now, Laura, when this news came down last week from the Quarter Special Appeals, you know, I was at work. I was in a meeting and the news came down like as a tweet. And then I actually excused myself from the meeting and pretended I had a phone call and had to leave so I could read the news. I was really shocked. Were you as surprised as I was, Laura, when you heard the news? What was your reaction? I was really surprised because I felt like the momentum had been building and we've got, you know, Adnan has this amazing legal team and all this support. And, you know, there was the the ruling that this one overturned. And I was I was like, you know, this things are finally, you know, turning around. So I was like, whoa, wait, where, where did this come from? You know, because it just it just wasn't the direction that I thought things were going. So it was pretty discouraging to hear that, especially, you know, when, you know, I was I was actually skiing last weekend and I ran into some of my public defender friends and I was like, did you hear about Adnan? And they were all like, ah, they were also equally because like we were all talking about like, regardless, if you think your alibi witness is credible, you have to interview the damn alibi witness. And they're like, yep. I'm like, would you guys have fired me if I hadn't done that? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was very discouraging and then I was like god talk about f timing right I mean it came out on Friday and Sunday the HBO show started really I, I don't know I just very discouraging and I but at the same time I I hope and it sounds like Justin Brown is ready to fight on so maybe he can rage rock with me about that I don't know <laughs> I will say uh, Robbie has tweeted a couple times about Justin because if issues come up about his own work mm -hmm. he's like please call me ineffective please it's fine I'll take it <laughs> Kevin, were you surprised when this ruling came down? I was. I, I very much was. I mean, um, 
you know, I keep like struggling sort of like with the uh, there's there's part of like this reporter part of me that like still wants me to like not take a side on a, a news story. Right. But I just can't get away from, you know, just how I feel personally, which is, yeah, I, I was surprised. I would like to see Adnan's conviction overturned because I don't think he got a fair trial. So. They were racking up wins, 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 wins all the way through. Yeah, and they had, and they don't need, they didn't need every win for this. They only needed like a couple of wins. Nope. Yeah. But here's my question about that reporter thing you just said. Yeah. Because you know, part of me feels the same way. As you know, like Rabia has become a dear friend. Right. I have my personal feelings about this, but I also have an understanding that I don't actually know. Right. Right. And by the way, I also have an understanding that Rabia doesn't actually know but she knows what she does know and there are a bunch of facts here and there and, mm-hmm. and so forth but like let's, let's just for a second take the whether or not Adnan Syed committed this murder off the table right we have a 17 year old who was convicted by a on the record corrupt police department with actual detectives who've worked on cases that have been overturned because of bad practices the idea that he would get a new trial even if you think he might be guilty just seems fair Right. Well, yeah, it seems fair. Yeah. But it's a justice system. It's not a fairness system. Right. As a prosecutor, I know, likes to say. And it's true. Wait, what prosecutor, you know, likes to say that? Jeff says that. Really? Jeff Strelzen says that. I've, got, I've quoted him at that. It's That's a, a good line. It is a good line. And it's 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 appropriate because people go to court. You know, the victims of families go to court. They look for justice. They don't get justice. Well, they get justice, but they don't get fairness. Fairness mm. would be that their loved one comes back. Oh. In this case, fairness would be that wasn't a, a constitutionally uh, sound trial. You get a new trial. That's fair, but that you don't get that. Or as we'll talk about later, we can't address it now because we're talking about it in the second half of this podcast. It may not have been a constitutionally sound arrest. Well, I mean, there's other stuff going on There's other on things here. too, right. right. But would it be fair for him to get a new trial? Yes, yes. but it's if not nothing a fairness else. system. If nothing yeah. else, that would be fair. Yeah. So Toby, do you think that now knowing that Anand Syed faces a much longer and probably much tougher battle... Does it color the way we are seeing the material and evidence this documentary that we're about to review part two of on HBO is laying out for us? I don't know if it's that 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 colors it for me. Uh, I was actually thinking about this when I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today. So much has gone on between when we were talking about Serial, like sort of the first time we addressed this story. And now just, you know, even in terms of like getting to know Rabia better. But then everything that undisclosed is done and people taking very strong, passionate sides on social media. And it's just such a different environment in which we're taking a look at this. And I was thinking about that, especially watching the second episode, which goes through some of the stuff that was in Serial and also expands on a lot of it in, in I think, a really good way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know so much if it's just that ruling what Kevin was saying about you know it being a justice system and stuff, I mean, I, I think there's there's kind of two things in my mind. One is, which is sort of fairness for Adnan, and I think the reality is, like, in most countries that we kind of consider to be sort of like our affinity countries, like, even if he was guilty, he'd be about to get out right. anyway. Right. You know? yeah, sure. or just our yeah. sentencing is so ridiculous. But then the other thing is, is that the reason why I think things like this are so hard, and he's got this huge, you know, in some ways advantage of having all this publicity and all this all this pressure, I think, for the courts to at least pay attention to him, 
is that, you know, our courts are so bound up dealing with like nonviolent drug offenders and things like that, that it makes things like this more difficult to get to. You know, the, the resources are so drained on things that seem less important. So yeah, that's, that's sort of, those are my thoughts for the day on that. Yeah. I think instead of more prisons, we should be building more courts. Yeah, potentially, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to speed the process up. I mean, Serial 3 made a good point of that. And and here we are again. Why is it going to take a couple of years? Yeah. Because there's a huge line ahead of them. Right. Well, I right. do I do want to make a plug for one thing that I recommended in our uh, Vulture column that we're contributing to this week, the best yeah. true crime pass of the week. And also, you know, as you know, I do do the audio production of Undisclosed. And this week for episode one, they taped their episode just like we did talking about the episode like before it came out and it was before the ruling came out. And they just talked about the episode of the of the documentary. And I would tell our listeners, like, even if you're not listening to Undisclosed, like this series of episodes where they're talking about the documentary, I would check them out because not only do they give you sort of an inside view of how that team worked with the documentary filmmakers in some ways, and then keep in mind, because Amy Berg did the, her own investigation, and she's a filmmaker, she didn't just like say, oh, your theory is right, like, I'm going there. Mm-hmm. They actually give some insight into what they're seeing that they didn't know was going to be in the documentary. And one of the things that happens on this week's episode of Undisclosed, not the one that's coming out tonight, but the one that came out last Monday, is that Susan Simpson gives a very compelling argument about the fact that what actually could have happened to Heyman Lee has nothing to do with Adnan or Jay or anybody we see on the table. She talks for about 10 minutes. She lists a number of cases that happened in the months preceding and after Hayes' murder where young women were attacked in their cars on their way from someplace to another within just a couple of miles of where Hay was at, what was that day? Woodland High School, the child care center. It is fascinating. And I will say that if you are like, if you're of the mindset that like, okay, well, Robbie and her people are biased, blah, 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 blah. Listen to this episode of Undisclosed because there's stuff in there that I think you might find really interesting. And that does color the way I watch the documentary and the other way. You know what I mean? Last night, HBO aired the second episode of the four-part documentary, The Case Against Adnan Syed. The episode was called In Between the Truth. This chapter focused on the more damning elements of the case against Syed, including the cops taped interview with Jay Wilds and the corroboration of his story by Jay's friend, Jen Pusateri. I guess at first, you know, like, I ran from it. You know, I didn't uh, really want to face it. Didn't really was hoping I could just do anything to make it go away. Now here it is. It's like, you kind of got to relive it all over again. Now we're going to be talking about plot points for part two of the case against Adnan Syed. So to remain spoiler free and just hear our letter grade review of this episode, go to the time code listed in our show notes to hear that review. Now, this episode opens with the post-conviction relief court scene where we know that Adnan got to go to court (laughs) and Justin Brown was there defending him and like Susan Simpson got to go and we're going to hear about all this new evidence presented in this case. Even Thiru Vignaraja makes an appearance, you know, through a TV interview. And by the way, Thiru, I don't know you, but you're not fooling anyone with that tiny coma hair in the middle of your head. It's just time. I was, to- I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> it's just time to do the Matt Lauer and just 
Shave it off, my friend. Anyway, um, and we do see Rabia, our friend, at Dunkin' Donuts after getting kicked out of the courtroom. Uh, So what happened was the prosecutor said, well, before my opening, I have um, some preliminary matters. And then he turned and looked at me and turned around and said that we want to sequester witnesses. The prosecutor started reading off the names of Justin's witnesses. My name was on the list, like six, seven people. And so Justin stood up and said, well, we're not going to be calling Ms. Chaudhry. And the prosecutor said, well, I reserve the right to call her, so I'm asking she be sequestered anyways. It was just a dirty move. I am, I can bet the barn that he's not going to call me. If he did, I'd be surprised. I don't think, I, I would be a hostile witness. I would be a very, very hostile witness. <laughs> Lara Bricker, do you agree with Rabia Chaudhry in the documentary? Was this just a dirty move by Thiru to get her out of court as a psychological play? Yes. I was like, seriously, this is what, oh, what a jackass. It made me so angry. Um, You know, I have been sequestered many times in the past when I was working as a defense investigator. When I was actually legitimately going to testify, I would have to sit out in the hallway. And a lot of times, yeah, I didn't get called because they didn't need me to, you know, discredit something that, that was testified to. But in this case, it was so obvious that he was just doing it as like this passive aggressive little power play. And then I was like, Rabia, she's just like us. She goes to Dunkin' Donuts too. Mm. Like, <laughs> but I was just like, what the fuck? It made me so angry. Um, and and for all the work that she's put into it, I mean, how discouraging. But she had such a good attitude about it. I mean, I don't know. I would have been a little more like, Rah! so I I did not like that move. But Kevin, you did like it that she went to Dunkin' Donuts, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I remember that from her podcast. It's your favorite brand said, of donuts. Yes, <laughs> Dunks. Dunks. It's like, hey, did you get the did you get the hazelnut? Did you get a regular? You know, regular. It's like, it means with cream and sugar. You know, that's regular. Yeah. All right. Well, then we see more trial footage from the original Anansiad case. We see Detective Ritz on the stand. Kevin, doesn't he not look like he's out of Central Casting? These two detectives, especially oh, yeah. Detective Ritz. Yeah, they fit. They look like yeah. It's cops. like Dennis Farina would have played him in the movie, <laughs> right? Well, one of the things that happens in this episode that is super interesting to me is. The more damning parts that make Adnan look guilty, or at least the construction of the story that he looks guilty, we start to get the unpacking of the Jay Wilds timeline. Um, his first taped interview was on February 28th, and just a few hours later, Adnan was arrested. When I was initially arrested, they had the initial of Miranda sheet once they gave me the charging document. I was like, holy crap, man. Now, the documentary hints there's more at play here, and the way that that comes forth first is that Inan's original lawyer, Chris Floor, who I have met in person, and I'm sorry, Chris, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you're not, but if in case you are, I am also not a fan of the long hair. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Super nice guy, though. I think you just feel threatened. <laughs> I loved it. I loved how his wife was like after him to brush it. Yeah. He looks um, like the real-life version of the maestro in the opening credits of The Simpsons. He's legitimately so, so nice. I bet. But he comes on and basically says that he knew from the beginning that Anon wasn't guilty or those are that's his strong feeling. But then we hear about the police refusing to let him into the police station to represent a 17-year-old defendant, even though he's been hired, because that 17-year-old defendant has not specifically asked for an attorney. But there is an attorney there to represent him. Toby, what did you think of this play by the Baltimore police station where Nan was being questioned to not let a lawyer in who had been hired to defend him? 
I, I only think there's one answer to that question, which is I don't think it's a very nice thing for them to do. <laughs> Not I, cool? Yeah. So this is one of the things that I, I kind of have a hard time wrapping my head around for the whole case, right? Is that why do they make this kind of concerted effort mm. against him? Like, is that standard operating procedure for the Baltimore police is, is to basically do what you can to deny a lawyer even after it's been requested or a, a lawyer has been sent? Because that seems strange. So yeah, so it just it just seemed weird. It's like, why would you? What is it about this case? Unless it's standard operating procedure, what is it about this case that would make you make a decision like that to try and keep him isolated from, you know, legal advice during questioning? I do think it's important to look at the context of the Baltimore police. And the things that have been revealed subsequent to 1999. Mm -hmm. The murder of Heyman Lee was investigated by detectives Ritz and McGillivary, who we heard in Serial and who we see here. To date, four defendants who were convicted of murder pursuant to their investigations have been either wrongfully convicted, found to be wrongfully convicted or releasing from prison. But there's a whole other component here where... um, 42 investigations that Detective Ritz was involved in have resulted in um, nulled charges or otherwise dismissed voluntarily by the state after it was determined that the evidence was insufficient or or the investigation was insufficient. So, yeah, I do think it's standard operating procedure. Like they identify a person. They go after the person. And because of the way that we saw in The Wire, Mm -hmm. the stats were more than anything, the closure of cases, the getting like points on the board. I do think it was standard operating procedure. I guess I've got two thoughts. One is I think like in general uh, it was. And I, you know, I think back to uh, Homicide, which we did for the deep dive and how like these tactics to a certain extent are portrayed in that book. But in the book, it's not. Because you're be, you're looking at it from a different side of the table, basically, it seems more like smart policing than it does like if I mean I think it's portrayed that way versus like sinister, which is the way it seems to me generally and in this particular case. I guess the other thing was just it seems like the whole thing about preventing people from exercising their Miranda rights. That just seems like such an easy thing to get caught at if you're mm. doing it a lot. Yeah. That, that was, yeah. I guess that was my only that was my only thought there. Is it seems like there are other ways of of getting around this stuff other than reading somebody's rights saying, I want a lawyer and then not letting the lawyer come in. Right. Now, Kevin, you know who we see in this episode? Which I know you love. Who? PIs doing investigating oh. <laughs> on a train. Oh, I love the train. It's like so many of your favorite things oh, together. PIs a train. Is there a bar cart? I know. You love the whole thing. Uh, the scene cart, was yeah. wonderful for you. But basically, um, the PIs meet up with that surveyor, that city surveyor uh-huh. that we meet in Serial, who walks them through the same thing we heard him do in Serial. Yeah. He says, there's no way Mr. S found the body like he said. And the documentary does a really effective production job here, interspersing their investigation with the surveyor with trial testimony from Jay. All right, Mr. Bartmeyer, let's have you recreate the surveying job that you did. I need somebody to hold zero in the chain. I went back there and, uh, I got a bunch of old brush around. Just kind of like laying against the ball. Now, here we hear Adnan Syed himself saying he never knew the state's theory of the case. Until Jay testified, Until yeah. he heard that testimony from Jay. I, I mean, I didn't fully really know that the state's theory is that Hayes murdered until he testified on the stand. 
What did you think of that? And did you, like me, think that also spoke to his lawyer's incompetence? That he had no idea. Yeah, Yeah, you know, the more I think about that, I mean, how can you assist in your own defense if you are unaware that that's the thing You don't even know what the witness is going to say? Because in theory, he could say, oh, that's what they're saying? Oh, no, no, I was at the mosque, and here I can prove that. Right. It it could give the defendant the chance to... Refute. I mean, this 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 testimony. It's called disclosure, you dickhead. As Marissa Tomei says in My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had I hadn't really thought about it like that. But you talk about Mr. S, as he was known in Serial. I'm getting this from different places, uh, and I may be conflating where I heard this from. I think that he was traveling towards work when he said he had to stop and pee. Mm-hmm. He's less than a mile yeah. from work. Yeah. Which can't be more than two, three, four minutes, right? Right. Traffic, whatever. And he pulls over to the side of the road, and it's in the middle of the road. Yeah. And to go pee, he doesn't go pee on the side of the road he's on. He crosses the road. Yes. And then goes into the woods. Right. Deep into the woods. Right. Fairly deep. Deep yeah. enough. Deeper than he needs to, and finds the body. Right. You heard the across yeah. the street thing from Robbie and Undisclosed. That, okay. That's what I heard. But basically what it says is the story he's telling about how he found the body is not true. Yeah. yeah. We're not saying he didn't find it. We're not saying he didn't know where it was, but we're saying that the story he told. Yeah. The story he told does not hold up. Something is off with that whole thing. Like either he was meeting somebody there, either somebody said, hey, you should go see what I saw. Right. Uh, there's, some, there's something else that has, it yeah. just, it doesn't make sense. And if you want to be- believe there is a larger conspiracy, you could probably make the case that somebody told him where that body was yes. and you be you know yeah. here's another ne'er-do-well like jay who's in, in trouble with the here's law here's another professional witness you be a professional witness and say you found the body right things, there and i'll tell you you know when i first heard this ends, whole professional know, but, witness theory yeah i was like okay that seems like a lot but then in the last two years all these stories have come out about the baltimore police department that date back to this era and they're the same yeah. detectives and the professional witness theory holds up. It holds up. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's very, very interesting. So, one of the things we hear in this episode is when Adnan is arrested, his friends, who were kids at the time, they react to the news and they basically go to the adults and they're like, What are you doing? There's no way that Adnan did this. And they kind of call bullshit on the arrest. Uh-huh. One of the teachers said, This is a Muslim thing. She scorned him, so that was like revenge and that was acceptable in his religion. I can remember just thinking to myself, this is complete bullshit. So the kids are told if they're arresting Anon, there's a reason. There's DNA evidence. And then we learn like there actually isn't any of that. So the kids were right, Kevin, to call bullshit. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're right to call bullshit. The parents are right if they're saying you can't just say he because he's a nice guy, he didn't commit a crime. Right. Right, the, the fingerprints aren't there. We know the DNA. Lie. Yeah, so. <laughs> I have a question, though, about, I mean, I, I know I probably should know this, and the internet will immediately respond to my question. Is it Jennifer Pusateri's testimony that Jay came to her the night of the murder slash burial? Yes. yes. So no. weeks before, before anyone ever knew that she was dead. Correct. And said, this is what happened. Jennifer Pusateri is live and in person in this documentary. She talks about her relationship with Pothead Jay. She recounts the story that we heard in Serial, which on its face makes Adnan look super guilty. I remember the phone call. I remember him leaving. Do you remember when that was? 
between 3.30, 3.45. The next thing I remember is calling. I remember that we were supposed to hook back up. I had got a page from Jay. I really couldn't understand what he was trying to say. I was confused, so I called um, a cell phone number that I had got off my caller ID from um, that phone that he had earlier. What happened when you called that number? Someone answered the phone and said Jay would call me when he was ready for me to come and get him. He was busy. And I think about a half hour later, Jay called me back. I went, picked him up. Well, there's also her sorority sister. Mm Mm-hmm who also confirms her story Correct. of that night that Adnan came in and he didn't say anything and, you know, seemed that freaked out. That weird kid. She Kathy not Kathy, who's actually yeah, named Kristen Vincent. Is that Kathy Vincent. not Kathy? No. Absolutely, okay. that's Kathy not that's, Kathy. That was the note. <laughs> <laughs> she basically says uh, she's sure that all this happened on January 13th. Jay showed up with yeah. Adnan. They're both super high and they were super weird. So she's corroborating the story that Jen says she heard, which she admits is all hearsay, that Jay did. But they both are kind of allied in this. And it looks bad. Toby, they're putting all the stuff out there that makes it non's. It makes it non look bad. It makes it look like he did it. Right. I don't know if it makes it look like he did it, but it does go back to serial where, you know, it was just hard to tell. I mean, that was the whole thing about that made serial so effective, I think, is that from what information you got through the podcast, your thoughts about it kept changing. And at the end, you know, even the producer and the host can't really agree on whether they think he was he was guilty or not. So again, as I was saying earlier, I think sort of post serial, you know, there's been so much stuff going on and everything seems so polarized around Adnan that you kind of forget that at least from serial and, and, and starting the first, the first half of this as well is that there's a lot of questions both ways, right? you know, Um, it's it's not even as somebody who hopes Adnan gets out and, and all that, like there, there is stuff where it's just like, Hmm, you know, this is a tough one to explain. It's okay to just say it doesn't look good. There are things in this episode That don't look Jennifer's I think, testimony is troubling to me. It is troubling. Yeah. And by the way, if they didn't include it and show it, that would be bad, right? She was a key witness in this case. And the fact that they have real life present day Jen and they intersperse that, you know, young Jen at trial and yeah. Pre- yeah. it's fascinating. And of course, you know, even though she points out that her own credibility might be up, she seems very, very certain in the moment she's telling you this. But where Toby says Adnan is really polarizing, I really think we've taken our eye off the ball on this. And I think this episode starts to come around to it. To me, it's Jay who's really polarizing. Yeah, well, it's just it's definitely when you listen to more details about Jay in this episode, you know, you hear, you know, him and Jen hanging out smoking pot all the time. You hear the other people talking about how he was just a little different than the other kids. And then, you know, the, the police interview where, where this whole convoluted story comes out about Adnan. Um, but then he told different people different things. So, you know, he has this friend, Chris, who never talked to the cops, had a completely different story from Jay about where Hayes body was found and the, where the Jay trunk told, pop, right yeah told him they were at the pool hall and he was talking to him and told him that he saw the body and then that guy said actually nobody even talks to Jay anymore because yeah. he's such a jerk so I was like it just Jay just seems like the least credible person 
and, and even his friends don't find him credible anymore, except for Jen, who just, you know, I, I don't know. But it was at the end of this episode where we actually meet Jay's ex-girlfriend that I was mm-hmm. like, whoa. I think that to me definitely made him stand. I felt like the focus needed to be on him a little bit more at that point. And when you're hearing the arrest record uh, when he goes to California and then how some of the cases just sort of were resolved, which seemed yes. a little odd. And um so I'm eager to see where that goes because I definitely feel like the character of Jay, I mean, I know we've talked about Jay so much in the past, but now again, we're hearing from people that we've not heard from before about Jay, like the ex-girlfriend. So that this is interesting. I think what's interesting and what I don't want to do is fall into the trap of, and this is what I think the mistake Serial made, is putting Jay in the frame as a possible conspirator in a murder. Because I think that is a false choice. Is Jay guilty or is it non-guilty? It is a false choice. I think the road this documentary is leading us on is the same road that Rabia has been pointing to now for two years, which is that Jay is a professional witness and was coached over a series of interviews until this interview we hear because a police approached Jen on February 26th after, by the way, a defense investigator finds out that Jay has been interviewed by police several times. His first taped interview was on the 28th. Uh, Jen gets pulled in on the 26th and she says, and I quote, they talk to me, but it's obvious they talk to somebody else before they talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So this defense investigator, Andrew Davis, comes in. He finds out that Jay had missed work on four separate days. Prior to his first interview to go talk to the police, yet the police pretend this 28th was the first interview with Jay. It's their first taped interview. So, you know, we have the Kathy, not Kathy thing. We have the Jen thing. All this stuff looks really bad. But now they're starting to unravel some of those threats. And one of the ways they do it is by Adnan saying, you know, when they arrested me, I saw this first degree premeditated murder. Cuts to the tape of Jay saying to the cops, in his first taped interview, which we now know is the fifth or sixth time we talked to him saying, oh, yeah, that's right. Adnan told me he was going to kill Hay that day. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like someone fed him the line or that he invented the line in order to answer a question that to check a box about we don't have a motive or we don't have premeditation. You know, is there any is there any indication that this was premeditated? And so that answer covers it. That's right. I just never believe that someone who will say, I'm going to kill somebody today. If I'm going to turn to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people yeah. have done that. I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to say, I'm going to kill somebody today. And you don't bring a oh, weapon. You okay. don't bring an instrument. Right. You strangle somebody with your hands. Right. Right. Because now it's been a long time since we talked about this, but there was no ligature marks. Right. right. It right. was manual strangulation. Manual strangulation, which does you know, often mean somebody did it impulsively. A spontaneous crime. A spontaneous act. Whether you want to call it a crime of passion or opportunity or whatever. But it doesn't it just doesn't scream premeditation, because if you were going to do that, you know, you wouldn't do that at the Best Buy parking lot. Right. With your hands. Well, I will say that, uh, you know, Rabia and sort of trying to unravel this, we get to the peak of this episode where the stuff looks really bad for Anon. And Jay says, you know, the police were being deliberate. They're pretending like the 28th is his first interview, but he's actually had four prior interviews and they are helping him craft a story. Cut to Massey, who says, yeah, this is normal. This is actually how we do it. 
We help <laughs> we help witnesses craft stories. Now, fun fact about Massey, Lara, last week you asked the question, is he retired? Like what's the deal yeah. with him? I have some some stuff for you on that. Okay. Massey is actually retired. Interestingly about Massey, his main role in this case was that he was the one who allegedly took this anonymous phone tip from an alleged Asian man saying that Anand Syed had committed this crime. When it came time for the trial, Anand Syed's trial for this crime, Massey could not be found. He was uh, attempted to be contacted, to be called as a witness. He could not be found. He was unavailable. The defense searched for him for months. He was never able to be found for trial. So they had to just like knock him off as a witness. And now he he is in the documentary. I wonder where he was. I would have found him. I want to talk about, so I think that was at this point in the episode where there was this teaser in the previews of this documentary that had me so excited to see what was actually happening. Oh, yeah. The shovel? The shovel. And I was like, what are they digging? And and so now we know what they were digging. Well, Kevin has always pointed to the car and Jay knowing where it was, looking the worst of all. As far as yeah. evidence in this case goes, right, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's always been your thing. So did Sarah. How did Jay know where the that's car an import- was? Yeah, it's an important... And Detective Massey agrees with you, Kevin. Where do you guys go to from the park? He, he, he figured to leave his car on a strip since it was hot. Down off of uh, Route 40 or Henderson Avenue. Um, we went to the strip up there and crossed the car back on both sides. In the back of a bunch of rubble in the parking lot. Subsequently, we recover the car. Doesn't take a rocket scientist to know. We never knew where the car was. And then we talked to Jay and we know where the car is. But then Rabia says, I think Jay knew knew where the car was the way he knew everything is that somebody told him. And if there's any evidence that the car was moved after January 13th, it means Jay was lying. Could the car have been moved? We see an investigation that the PIs do into the car, potentially. Toby, what do you think of this part of the documentary? Then bringing the scientists out, looking at the grass, talking to neighbors. What do you think of this? I thought it was good. It's detective work. I kind of feel that this, unlike some other documentary series that we've looked at, it's hard to know how it fits in. So the car was moved, and then how, you know, what's the theory that this fits into? where it's like an aha moment, yeah, you know, yeah. like you kind of realize that it's important, but what does it mean? You yeah. know, yeah. Who, who moved it? I think they have to answer that question as storytellers because they put right. it out there. Because if they don't, then I'm like, well, cut this whole thing. I'm thinking that they, they've shown their skill so far. So I'm like, okay, then they probably will not blow this very rudimentary element here to spend... 10 minutes of your, your documentary following these private investigators on the Amtrak to go out and talk to people. Which you loved. Which you loved, right? Dig, you know, bring out this, the scientists and dig, talk about oh, this all the different kinds of grass if this means nothing. Because I'm sure there are other things that they've done which ended up meaning nothing that they don't put in. If you put this in, it better mean something. I could not agree with you more. It's like, yeah, that's cool. I'm interested in finding out what it means. Yeah. And hopefully they're going to tell me. And the other thing is, like, what happened to Dawn? You know, yeah. I mean, they did spend time with Don in the uh, on the first one, and they kind of made him seem like a little sketchy. And then you don't hear about him in mm. the second one. Don's Ibsen's gun. You bring him out in the first it's act. And, one and done. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, it's like it's hard to say now because we're only halfway through it. And, and hopefully a lot of this stuff gets kind of resolved. 
But like my hope is that they're not just kind of flailing around. So here's the thing about Don that Rabia says, and again, in this week's episode of Undisclosed, which by the way, I'm not plugging this on the producer. I'm going to pay more if you guys listen to it. <laughs> but she says one really compelling thing, which is that it's not Don's fault that the police did not look into him properly for this crime. Yeah. Right? So he doesn't really have a real alibi because the time card thing is bullshit. His mother was his alibi. Nobody really knows. He didn't call Hay after she disappeared. No one really knows why. It could just be that he wasn't as into her as she was into him. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he was like, whatever. She might be on a trip and whatever. I don't have to deal with this teenage kid following me around. Who knows? It's not his fault that he's in the frame. It's the cop's fault that he's in the frame because they did not eliminate him. And it is the cop's fault if, for instance, and this is with the car, Jay says he knew where the car was. Rabia thinks it's because someone told him where the car was. And her whole point is, if it was there and we can prove it all that it was not sitting there for six weeks, then we know the information he gave, which is that they literally drove the car there and parked it, is a lie. So her whole point is, it doesn't matter who moved it. What matters is what he told the cops isn't true. He told them that because they told him to tell him that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But who and why is also sort important. Of. Well, that's the thing. I, but, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from watching them, the scientists. By the way, he was a turf physiologist. I know. Or, yeah. I loved, <laughs> I loved that there was ever. a title. So specific. Um, He's been waiting his whole life for this this documentary. Uh, but I would, so like, you know, yeah, I ho- I agree with you guys. I hope they, they wrap that up. But at the same time, I think what I took from that was like, okay, clearly you look at the picture. Um, you look at the grass. You listen to the guy talk. It's pretty clear that that car was not sitting there all that time. That's so right. that's the thing I took from it. Is like, well, where was the car? How did it get here? And how did Jay know about it? So that's that's what I'm taking from it. Is there's something else? There's another missing piece that is connected to that, right? And if there had been, I mean, I think that the theory is that there had been a coaching thing. And they had perhaps found the car before, but they really wanted all these pieces to stick together. That mm-hmm. telling Jay where to tell them it could be found and then finding it in that spot would be the way to do it. And these cops do that shit. We have seen video of them putting drugs in a place yeah. and then, surprise, finding drugs in that place. Uh, uh, not these cops. No. This department. That old lady sure. that lived out there, she was, I loved that old lady. And she's like, nope, we n- never would have sat there that long without somebody noticing it. So I was like, and she'd been there for what, 40 years? I loved how she yeah. also knew the grass history. She was one of my favorite characters, by the way. <laughs> it's the jackpot with her. Well, there's one yeah. big other thing that happened in this episode we have to talk about. I know, we're running long. There's a lot here. Don't look at your watch, Kevin. Sorry. <laughs> We finally see in person, not just on Twitter and Instagram, Miss Asia McLean. So she is sticking with her story. She has kept her high school planner slash diary all of these years, which is really something. Even her memory of the conversation she has with the non-Syed in the library on the day of Hayes' murder is crystal clear. I told him that I heard that they had broken up. He told me that it was true. He said that she had started a new relationship with another guy. He referred to him as um, a white dude, is what he said. You know, I kind of felt bad for prying. He just kind of shrugged it off and he said, you know, I just want her to be happy. Thoughts on Asia McLean, both in this documentary and the Asia McLean we see in real life doing all the stuff she's doing out there. Laura, you have thoughts on Asia and her reliability as a witness? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it was interesting to see her. I liked how they filmed her in the library. That was very dramatic, the way they staged all of that. I think, like I've said all along, you know, the fact that she was not interviewed at the time that the initial case was taking place was ridiculous, you know, and that's that's like, you know, this. I was actually having this conversation with some of my defense attorney friends when I was skiing this weekend when I was like ranting and raving about this because I was like, had they gone and talked to her, even if they weren't quite sure if she was credible, if they had gotten there early enough, they could have pulled the surveillance tapes and they could have seen who was in the library. But guess what? They didn't. So, you know, there's things, the other things that could have been done to bolster her credibility and the story that she was giving for his alibi that because the ball was dropped were not done. So it continues to frustrate me, um, but it was, you know, I, I liked how they set it all up and actually took her to the place where the conversation occurred. You know, I, I have to think that if I were an attorney and I had a witness, I probably wouldn't be crazy about the idea of her writing a book. Correct. Um, or getting out and doing as much media. And social as, media. And social media. Um, and stating but, her preference for an outcome. But- Unless the U.S. Supreme Court takes up this case, I think that Asia McLean's importance to this crime is now moot. Yeah, I think so, too, except for the fact that it does. I know this is now a settled decision. It's about Christina Gutierrez. It's not about Asia McLean. That's what it's right, actually about. Right. And the court has decided that it wouldn't have made a difference to the jury no matter what. In their weird, contradictory decision where they're like, oh, well, he could have murdered her later. But then they were also like oh, that was definitely the time that he murdered her in the same written decision. Yeah, and by the yeah. way, if you don't know what I'm talking about, yeah. read Colin Miller's blog. It's all there. It's really strange. It's really strange. But it was nice to see Asia in person on film. It was it's cool to see all these people on person on film. It's super interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we wrap up, a couple quick points. We learned in this episode of the documentary, DNA was never run. The fingerprint on the mirror in Hay's car, which did not match Hay or Adnan, was never run against any of the other people in this case. Yeah. Anyone else besides me think that that was not good police work? Yeah, I yeah. actually had a little star next to that point. I was like, <laughs> fingerprint on Hayes' car. Mm-hmm. In the yeah. mirror. Yeah. But did they did they still have that? I mean, did they actually take the fingerprint and just not run it so that at some point we could go back and do that? I wasn't clear on that part. I don't know. All I know is the mirror is the thing you would adjust if you were moving a car yeah. or driving a car, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Well, your thumbprint would be on a key. Yeah. It would be on the Kevin, I have a car in which there are like driver seat settings. Yeah. And when I put it back to driver one, the only thing that's always fucked up after you drive it is the mirror. That's true. (laughs) Well, you can make an argument that a fingerprint on the outside of the car could be left by anybody. anybody. It's not as important as, say, a fingerprint on the inside of the car. Mm -hmm. And certainly a fingerprint from somebody who should not be there. Mm -hmm. So, Toby, we start getting the case that Jay was perhaps a professional witness that was you know, used in this case to convict somebody. We see a long series, years of arrests. The PIs lay it out on one of their special PI whiteboards that apparently PIs only use on TV, (laughs) which I will forgive them for because if they just showed us their files, it would be super boring. So they have to put it on a whiteboard, Uh, right? PowerPoint. Jay has a series of arrests for which he never has any consequences. One of those arrests is for domestic violence. And all of a sudden, in a turn I did not expect... We see the victim of that crime, and she has receipts. Toby, did you expect that in this documentary? Because it was a turn for me. Uh, I don't know how anybody could have expected that. Mm. I don't know. It's a good cliffhanger that she's calling them, <laughs> and then they cut away. It makes you want to watch the next one, that's for sure. 
Jay definitely, like, he seems like a sketchy dude. Like, that's what everybody says about him. You know, while he was in high school, he was working at a porn store. I mean, that's with quarter booths or whatever. That seems kind of sketchy. Again, I, I just, I feel like it's hard to talk about, it's hard to be very critical of this, just because I feel like so much of this is hopefully set up for stuff that's going to be revealed in this in the third and fourth episodes, mm. in which case, like, all the stuff that, that seems sort of hanging in the air, it's not really fair to, like, criticize them for it, because you got to give them the time to to resolve. So, and I, I kind of feel the same way with, with this Jay stuff. Yeah. And I think, too, I don't want to make the mistake of saying, because Jay did this other stuff, he murdered Heyman Lee. I don't think the documentary is taking us there. And the point is about the police, right? Yeah. And I and, and I guess I should have been more clear when I said that Adnan was polarizing. I, I didn't necessarily mean in the same way that, that kind of Jay is. I was mostly thinking like social media and, and oh, all totally. that stuff mm-hmm. where yeah. people just like, you know, get frothing at the mouth about it. Absolutely. Um, anyway. Well, you are right, Toby. There is an excellent cliffhanger at the end of episode two. Not only do we have Nikisha calling Jay, we want to see if he actually picks up. We also have Kathy, not Kathy, whose name is actually Christy, beginning to bend, saying her memory of the day that she remembers the Jay Anon thing happening may be faulty. It's a very, very strong cliffhanger for Mm. this episode. So on that note, I think we should do what we are doing with this series. Give it a grade, not a thumbs up or thumbs down, but an A through F uh, where we are with this episode in the in the course of this series. And we'll give it our thumbs up or thumbs down review when it's all over. So Laura Bricker for episode two of The Case Against Adnan Syed. Where are you on the grade letter scale for this episode? I'm going to go with a solid B plus A minus because I, I really like it. I like seeing all the people. I The turf guy, the turf scientist um, who knew there was such a job. That was pretty awesome. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting. And, you know, yes, we know the story. There's not, you know, like so far the big bombshell that we've been waiting for. But there is information in there that makes you stop and think. And um, really, really well done. What about you, Toby? Grade letter for episode two of The Case Against Adnan Syed. Where are you at this point in the series? Well, first, I didn't realize until you mentioned it, but uh, it ends with the Nikisha call, right? Mm-hmm. Not the Nisha call. Yes, the Nikisha call. Right. It's a little little play on that. Um, so I, I, I give it a B plus, and I'll tell you sort of why, because I, I think it is good. But one of two things is going to happen. Either there's going to be two... Uh, fabulous episodes that kind of tie everything up and are revelatory and it's going to be awesome. So you want to leave room for great episodes to be better than this one, or it's not going to resolve it. And this is all just going to be like frustrating, in which case I wouldn't want to give it more than a B plus anyway. So that's where I am. Uh, I'm going to go with a second A in a row for this episode only because, well, first of all, I just, I'm really loving the series. I think it's really good. But I do love that despite the fact that we know this series is based on, you know, Rabia's work, this filmmaker, Amy Berg, is not afraid to show us the same thing Serial showed us. They talked to the real people today. And Jen in this episode still seems pretty freaking sure of what it is that she said and what she saw and the shovels thing or whatever, even though she didn't actually see any shovels, but it was all hearsay. But she still seems damn sure of it. And I think it is brave of this filmmaker to question Rabia that way. And I like it. But I think if the film didn't do that, it wouldn't be as good. Adnan does not look great at the end of this episode. 
Of course, neither does Jay, neither the cops. But they don't leave us with a a thing of like, it's so one-sided that we have to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the mark. It's not of making a, a murderer. No, it's not. It's the mark of a good film. So far, I'm just really enjoying this thing. So I give episode two an A. What about you, Kevin? I'm a B plus, A minus as well. Um, I think it was a good, solid second act. Uh, there wasn't anything, you know, overly glamorous or special about it. It was right on solid. And I'm with Toby that. Well, it, you know, it doesn't have to solve the crime in order to be a successful documentary. And I think we do know what the ending's going to be. Do we? Which is the latest news where oh. all the, you know, where the appeal is denied. Uh, and, uh, you know, very much like Serial, it can end ambiguously, but still be, if it's told the right way, still be satisfying with the narrative. But Toby is also right. You've put out a couple of plot lines here. And you have to resolve them. Land the plane. One way or the other, in a satisfying way. And again, that doesn't mean you solve the case, but in a narratively satisfying way, result, land on the note, right? Resolve that harmony. So I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking, this was good, Let's, and it should build to a, a great ending. Otherwise, uh, we're all going to be disappointed. And now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of the week. Of the week. <laughs> In what's possibly the best-named sting in FBI history, Operation Varsity Blues, doesn't... I don't want your life. (laughs) Hook and ladder, hook and ladder. (laughs) Dozens of wealthy parents, college employees, and other co-conspirators were charged with using all kinds of fraudulent tactics to get some underqualified rich kids admitted into some of the country's most elite schools. While much of the media's coverage has focused on the two well-known actresses and the CEOs and other rando richies charged with crimes including tax fraud, wire fraud, and just fraud fraud, <laughs> it's, some fraud the, 101. it's some of the details of this scam that have caught my attention. These include test takers correcting SAT and ACT responses, and in some cases, just pretending to be students and taking standardized tests on the kids' behalf. Kids were also passed off as athletes in sports they didn't actually play, with their heads photoshopped onto the bodies of real (laughs) athletes playing water polo and soccer, and in one instance, a USC basketball slot was given to the son of a wealthy person even though the rich kid was just five feet, five inches tall. <laughs> Sorry. Toby loves that detail. I can't even with this fucking story. Aside from He's the- probably super quick. <laughs> He's super quick. He dribbled underneath guys' legs. His name was Spud's Spud Rich Kinsey. <laughs> God. God. Aside from the obvious outrage, I feel about the many layers of the story. One thing has occurred to me. If you're rich enough, you can pretty much remake your lackluster high school career into anything you want it to be in order to game the college admission system or just to game life or whatever. So, panel, here's my question for you. Lara Bricker, what would you change about your high school career to make you look a little bit better? Wow. Um, well, I definitely would have. I, I went to a super high, uh, small school that I graduated from. We had 35 people in my class. So you had like one sport per season and no um, activities, really. Mm-hmm. I would definitely have added some more activities. I think that would have definitely bumped up my chances to get a better scholarship. Um, <laughs> and I may have also wiped out that one time that I got an in-school suspension. I would have just knocked that <laughs> off of there. What activities <laughs> would you have invented on your, your transcript? 
I don't know. Like blood I mean, drive or <laughs> blood drive leader. <laughs> I don't know. Community volunteer. Um, I, you know, water water girl for like one of the teams or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we had so so little going on. We had soccer, basketball, and baseball. Uh-huh. I, I've been told like I have some friends that when they're trying to get their kids into colleges, they're like they can't just play like clarinet or flute you have to pick an instrument that's like something nobody plays and that's what's going to yeah. get you the scholarship mm. so um out. yeah so i maybe i would have added something like that the triangle <laughs> all right toby ball what would you change about your high school career to make you look a little bit better I, it's hard to imagine that i could have looked much better <laughs> <laughs> i was such a well-rounded achiever <laughs> that it's hard to it's hard for me to figure out something. No, I. Uh, the only thing that that is at all comparable to what's going on now was that I did get a lacrosse recruiting letter mm. from like a legit Division three lacrosse school. Division three um, oh. was it Hofstra? <laughs> no, uh, but you know I didn't play lacrosse, which was the <laughs> what? So yeah, no, I, I didn't play lacrosse. Wrong My high school was ball. really good at lacrosse, oh. but I didn't play. So. Uh, but you've seen so, lacrosse. Yeah. Join our team. Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, I'd love to, man. That, it was just a letter. That's and I, I didn't get like a follow-up call or anything. But anyway, I, that's my deal. I feel like the person who took the art school photos tried to do this for me with that little like thing they offer for an extra $9 called acne touch-up. Oh. <laughs> that would have helped me. I, I didn't want like the picture acne touch-up. I wanted the real life Go like through. yes, like the like somebody to walk through, like follow me in my real life with a touch up pen and just like constantly be erasing my forehead. That would really have helped my high school career. What about you, mm. Kevin? What would you change about your high school career to make you look better? I would have liked to have been like captain of the football team. Really? Yeah, but our football team disbanded in 1973, <laughs> so I could have just put it on there. And yeah, no one could have contradicted me. Yeah, also you're not captain of the football team. Also, by the way, in your real actual life. The college you went to no longer exists. I could do that. You could literally say you were a valedictorian of your college. That's the uh, witness protection uh, program college that everybody gets. Nobody, if you're witness protection, they say you go to one of those colleges that close, so no University one there can remember. University of Notre Dame in Manchester, New Hampshire. It's Notre Dame College. Notre oh, really? Dame Not College. The univers- University of Notre Dame still yeah. around. That's the real one. Yeah. That's the real one. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a captain of University of Notre Dame football. I could say I was the fighting impressive. Irish. Rudy. Wasn't Rudy. that Rudy? Yeah. Rudy. <laughs> I, I don't think he was the captain. I think Kevin could be like Rudy. That's a walk on. I mean, it is St. Patrick's Day week. I, I don't know. You are the Rudy of podcast, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, you are the Rudy of mm-hmm. podcast. All right, Laura Bricker, before we wrap up the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a cat of the week because it is another viewing recommendation for Toby. We have Leah Park's cat, who is named Calicat, mm. because Calicat was watching their new favorite show, The Catwalk Documentary on Netflix, which... If you have not watched that yet, Toby, I'm going to come over and beat you. You need to watch it. It's so fun. <laughs> Threats cool. of violence. <laughs> so it's is this got, about ooh, models or about cats? It's about the Canadian cat show circuit, which is apparently a really big thing. And ooh la la is one of the cats that is um, the one to beat. So it's hysterical. And they have their um, cat shows in like Elks Lodges and stuff and um, but it's it's really a, quite a window into the world of Canadian cat shows. Wow. And Calicat, Leah's cat, really likes the show. All right. Well, Laura Bricker, people want to recommend to you their cats or dogs or llamas or iguanas or other animals to be pet slash cat of the week. How can they find you online? 
at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if people want to reach out to you and commiserate about the lacrosse playing that you never got to do but could have done in college, fakely, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, who want to reach out to you and just say congratulations on being Rebecca Lavoie's husband. How can they find you online? I'm going silent for that. <laughs> But how can they find you online? I'm, I'm Kevin. at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On and Instagram. Hello at Crime Writers On. Or boycott us there. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular Facebook page. The theme song for this fine podcast was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. You can go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media to get the Crime Writers On after show right Right now, we'll be spilling some good podcast tea there, perhaps about another popular podcast that may or may not be with their advertising agency anymore. Plus, you get access to Marry With Podcast, the show on which Kevin and I dispense all kinds of advice on things, including relationships. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the place Azer McLean will definitely say she saw Kevin Flynn 20 years from now. <laughs> on behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Does anyone have any questions about tonight's show before we start? No, I'm good. We're just going to go along, do whatever you tell us to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> as always. That's how we're doing. <laughs> it's no different than any other week as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, I did a little poll on the Brichter Scale page. Like, hey, I got some recording equipment. What does everyone want to hear about? And they're like, well, what does Rebecca tell you to do? <laughs> <laughs> this is a four-man bobsled. You're steering it. Sometimes I'm in the back hitting the brakes when it's done. But the rest of it, we're just all grabbing onto the person's waist in front of us and That's right. going down. Keep your head down. Partners in Crime Media. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity... We have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.